Oh, it's so much nicer preaching sitting down. <laughs> so, uh, so when I was 15, I went for my first skiing vacation. I wasn't a Christian yet, and uh, I think the Lord needed to slow me down a little bit to get me to read the Bible, which is how I became a Christian. And uh, on my last run of the last day, which for some of you who know me will think that this is inc incredibly out of character, I went as fast and as directly down the mountain as I possibly could and um, broke my leg on the way down. And uh, the, the surgery to kind of put the leg together was a bit complicated. And so what appears to have happened is that this part of my leg got a bend in it. And I could never work out why it was that throughout all of my kind of sporting life, I would turn this ankle continuously and you know, eventually it became almost impossible to play a lot of the sports that I most enjoyed. And um, recently, uh, they looked at it and said, well, uh, we're going to have to do some stuff to mm, help you walk, you know, as you become old and move into your dotage. And, um, and so they, uh, they broke my heel and um, moved the tendons around and stitched them together, in their words, with baseball stitches. And I'm like this for six weeks. So I'll be sitting down to preach for six weeks. So that's fun, isn't it, for me? And um, I take delight. I've, I've thought about two things. One is the things that caused us injury in a younger life, if you don't attend to them, will eventually become chronic conditions in later life. So we probably ought to be thinking about that. And the other one is, when they told me they were going to break my heel, I said, well, you know, Satan can strike my heel, but I'm still going to crush his head. Amen. So there's my testimony for the day. So today we're going to um, look at the story of Eutychus. And um, we're going to look at this amazing resurrection story that, that Morgan so beautifully introduced for us today. Wasn't that fantastic? Awesome. And as we, as we do this, we're going to do something that I think is quite interesting. The way that the Lord plans these things is just so amazing. I think what we'll begin to see today is a way of applying the teaching that we've looked at over the last several weeks, going back to this idea of God's power being made complete in our weakness, of God speaking through us with kindness rather than harshness, and how God can work generosity into our lives. A generosity that is articulated throughout the whole of our life, but a generosity that's celebrated in worship by the people of God down through the centuries as they bring their offerings. And um, just a quick note on that. The reason that we have the offering uh, things around is that uh, some people in their tradition are used to bringing offerings during worship. It's not necessarily the whole of their offering. It's often just a symbol of their offering. And certainly that would be the case with me. 
And the point of that symbol is the same point of every other symbol, in that you can invest that symbol with all the significance that you want to invest it with. Generally speaking, coming from a community and culture like this, we tend not to like showiness or a kind of extrovert model of the faith that seems to require of us uh, more public display than is necessary. But this is not about public display. The offering that we bring in worship is not about a public display to people. It's about a sign to ourselves and to the Lord that everything we have is from him and for him. And as we look at the passage today, we'll begin, I think, to see how the Lord can connect these many different things and show us what it is that he wants to say today. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. So this is a a very significant moment in the life of Paul, of course. Resurrections from the dead are not common occurrences in the Bible or common occurrences in the normal warp and weft of life when God is, as it were, weaving together the fabric of faith. But every so often things like that happen, and we've heard uh, one such circumstance today of God's miraculous life-giving power. And certainly uh, we've seen that Uh, throughout our life in many miraculous ways and certainly the people that we've trained in the ways of discipleship have seen specific resurrections from the dead in places like hospitals. But these are unusual events that are usually set aside for a specific testimony and a specific witness. But each one of them helps us to ask a very important question. And the question is a question that I ask myself and a question that I ask you today. And that question is this, where do you need resurrection? Human beings are able to resuscitate something that's almost dead. Only God is able to bring back to life that which is dead. Where in your life do you hope to see resurrection? 
Let's just look a bit more at the passage. We'll come back to that question in a moment. Um, This passage is interesting in that it gives us an early insight into the way that the schedule for the week began to change for the early followers of Jesus. Already, they had moved their sacred day from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the first day of the week. And we know from early historians making records of the early church that that sometimes it would be that Christians would gather at night and then meet through the night hours into the morning of the first day of the week. And um, it's a similar picture here, although it does appear as though uh, they're, uh, they're doing something quite different in that they're actually meeting on the first day of the week. But certainly a nighttime gathering when slaves and others who were under orders of their household um, could be free to go and worship. And so here they are, they're in, in a place very similar, perhaps maybe somewhat reminiscent of the stories of Jesus in the upper room. And Paul is speaking on and on. It's fun, isn't it, that, uh, that Luke kind of just brings that little bit of irony into the story. It's not as though, um, it's like my bottle's leaking. Is it? No, maybe not. Um, it's not as though uh, Luke's particularly committed to recording what it is that Paul said. He just says he just preached a long time. And then this poor young fella, he falls out the window. Third story, as Morgan has early pointed out, there aren't many ways to survive that. And um, of course, he's, he's picked up dead. Now, Here's the first question. Sally asked me this question last week when we were doing a Discovery Bible Community because in general in a Discovery Bible Community, you gather and you look at the text together and you don't bring any information from outside of the text so that everybody's on an equal footing and there are no experts or specialists. All you're doing is listening to what God says to you through the passage. But if it's necessary from time to time, and there's a person there who's a kind of a moderating presence, you can ask for external information. And Sally said, why is it that Paul didn't raise Eutychus from the dead in the way that Jesus and Peter did? The way that Jesus and Peter raised people from the dead was that they spoke a word And then often would take the dead person by the hand. There would be the briefest of touch. And the person would be reanimated and brought back to life. Lazarus is in his tomb. Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. The the little girl is dead in her bedroom. Little girl, I tell you, get up. The woman called Tabitha on the coast of Israel, where Peter is traveling, is dead. Tabitha, get up as he reaches and takes her by the hand. Why is it that Paul does something quite different here? 
I mean, those stories that I've just shared with you are recorded by Luke, a member of Paul's team who's here recording this as an eyewitness. So we know that the information that Luke had available to him, certainly Paul had available to him. So it's not as though we can simply say, well, Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples and so wasn't discipled by Jesus in the specific ministry of raising from the dead because he had all of the information necessary to know what it was that Jesus and Peter and the early disciples did. So why, why do it this way? Paul went down, verse 10, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. If you've got your Bible there, turn to 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 17. Um, if you've got like a proper Bible, you're going to have to look in the index because, you know, it's like trying to find the book of Hezekiah, which isn't in there. But uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 17. So this is Elijah. Right before he meets up with Obadiah, who is a follower of Yahweh, and sets up the meeting between him and um, Ahab and the gathering of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when God's fire comes down and consumes the, the sacrifice. Elijah has been struggling like everyone else with the effects of a terrible drought, a terrible famine that's come upon the land. He's had to leave the land of Israel and he's in a region just north of there called Zarephath. And there's a widow who perhaps has been widowed because of the effects of the famine and her son. And she has not enough food for herself and her son, but Elijah says, if you share the bread with me, your supplies will never run out. And sure enough, she has a continuous supply of wheat and oil. And they live together in the house of the widow. Verse 17, sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow? I am staying with by causing her son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Now, do you see the connection? There's something in the heart and mind of Paul that is drawing him into the story of Elijah 
rather than into the stories of resurrection in the life of Jesus. Because what he does is almost exactly what Elijah does. He lays himself out on the boy and then picks him up. Elijah does that three times. Paul does it once. But nevertheless, the action is the same. And in that action, life is brought back to the young man. And certainly in the cosmology of the world in which Elijah lived, the expectation would be that the life in Elijah was somehow transferred to the young boy and he was encompassed into the life of Elijah and brought back to life. That may not have been the cosmology of the, of the world of Paul, but certainly that of Elijah. So what's going on here? Well, as a preacher, I would have to say that there are certain things that go through your mind every week. One was, was I clear? Two, was I helpful? Three, did I go on too long? Four, did anyone die during the message? <laughs> now, I think that that's what's going on with Paul here. Elijah is put into a situation where he is being held responsible for the death of a child. Paul feels the responsibility of the death of a child. It would be almost impossible for Elijah not to feel as though it was really because he preached too long that this young man died. I don't think there'd be a person in any point of history who knew this particular set of circumstances and saw somebody die because they fell asleep whilst you were talking who could come to any other conclusion that somehow they were complicit in the person's death. Does that make sense? Elijah and Paul felt complicit in the death of the person. So let me come back to my question again. Where do you need resurrection in your life? Is it in your marriage? Is it in the depth of relationship that you, that you currently express one to another? Is it in your sex life together? Does it feel like what used to be a wonderful, intimate expression of love is no longer what it used to be? Do you need resurrection in other parts of your family? Do you, do you need resurrection in that child's life who you thought was a follower of Jesus and now seems to have wandered? Do you need resurrection in the life of the person who you knew to be a really solid believer? They were a close friend. But somehow they've drifted away. 
Do you need resurrection in your place of work? Has the work that you once enjoyed become flat and dull and dead? Do you need resurrection physically? Do you feel as though your energy levels have diminished, that your capacity to do certain things have been lost to you? Do you need resurrection in your finances because somehow with the march of time you found yourself not more free and liberated but more in debt and held captive? Where do you need resurrection? And do you feel complicit in the things that have died? Do you feel as though somehow you have been part of the reason the thing died? Do you look back on the relationship that you have with your child and you, you think back to those terrible arguments and the times when you forced the kids to go to church when they didn't want to, does it, does it stab you like a knife now? Do you feel as though somehow you have been party to that death of faith? When you look at that friendship and you think that person who used to be so close to you and so close to the Lord, do you feel somehow responsible because you didn't say anything? You didn't somehow have an intervention. You didn't somehow say the thing that you could have said at the, at the time you could have said it. Here's, here's my word to you. I think the main reason why people don't see resurrection is that they either hold themselves responsible or somebody else. And so they imagine that God can't work. Do you remember just a few weeks ago, we were talking about God's power being made perfect in our weakness. And it seemed as though when we looked at Paul's life, there were three steps that we needed to take to go from weakness to power. And those three steps appeared to be an acknowledgement of the reality in front of us, an acceptance of what it was that we acknowledged without accommodating what it was that we saw. So we could say, yes, this is an area of weakness in my life. I need to accept that, yes, I do have a tendency to, to react to other people as if I'm being rejected. This would be me. 
I have to accept that that's part of me, but, but I don't accommodate that. I don't say in that acceptance that, well, obviously, everybody's going to have to get used to it, and so am I. But acknowledgement is vital. Acceptance is hugely important. And then there's an articulation of what you believe God can and will do. Now, if in my litany of things that might need resurrection, you found something, or if that litany prompted in you another area where you need resurrection, what are you to do today? I think Paul acknowledged that he probably was responsible. I, I really do. I think that that's why he went back to the Elijah story rather than the Jesus or the Peter story. Because Elijah was dealing with being held responsible for a child's death. And certainly as he looked around the group of people who are rushing down the stairs into the street outside, he knows what they're thinking. And he knows what his own heart is saying to him. And because, of course, he's saturated in the scriptures, he's drawn back to a story that will help him. And so he acknowledges the fact. This is probably my fault, at least, at least partially. I can't, I can't avoid the consequences. I am complicit in what it is that's happened. And it's no good saying that the boy isn't dead. Because he is. And so he has to accept it. He has to acknowledge the reality of the situation. He has to accept it's dead. I was thinking of it because I was thinking of your situations, not the boy being an it. The situations where you need resurrection. You acknowledge that, yes, of course, I'm partly responsible. I'm partly to blame at minimum. And I accept that the consequences, the reality of that, are that this situation is now lifeless. But then comes the articulation. Now, over the years, as I've learned to live in the miraculous life rather than the ordinary life, I've noticed that my language has just subtly changed as I approach situations that seem intractable, impossible. First of all, because I've got fairly good theology, I say, God can change this situation. God can change this situation. 
And anybody who believes that God is God, in other words, the greatest being that anyone can conceive of, otherwise he's not God. Anyone who conceives of a being of such power would say, of course, he can change this situation. The next step comes not just from a theological grasp of the nature of the universe, but an experience and an encounter with Jesus. Because when you encounter Jesus, you move from a God who can do something to a God who wants to do something. Does God want to do that? What is, what is God's heart for humanity? What's God's heart for you? Does he want the best for you? So God wants to do that. Now, right here, you see, all the question marks begin to proliferate. Because we start thinking, well, if he can and he wants to, why doesn't he? And you've got to keep your heart soft and open at this point. And allow yourself to step back and say, okay, wait a minute. What do I see in the life of Jesus? I see a God of love who wants to bring transformation to people's lives. He wants to bring them the best. And when I step back even further and see the whole panorama of scripture, and I see the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end, I see that God's overall plan is to create a place and a space where humanity does not know sickness and death. And so I can absolutely, unequivocally say, that if I look at the life of Jesus and I look at the description of heaven, God wants these things to be true for me. And that's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Daddy, in heaven, may your name be lifted up as holy. Let the kingdom revealed in Jesus and present with you come here today. And let your will revealed in Jesus and present in heaven come and inhabit this place today. And then your heart is set free. Because you know that the things that God wants to do don't find resistance in you, but find acceptance in you. And then you can trust him for the timing. 
You can trust him for the timing. Can he? Sure. Does he want to? Absolutely. Will he? Yeah. You can trust him with the timing. So here's Paul. Here's you confronted with an experience of death. Here's me confronted by my experiences of death. I have to acknowledge that I'm responsible for a lot of it. I have to accept that the circumstances that look like death really are that. And then I begin to articulate faith. God can change this. God wants to change this. God will change this. And I can trust him for the timing. And when I pray, I'm going to pray the way that Jesus taught me. Because the way that he taught me meant that I was to expect the things that are real in heaven to be revealed here on earth. So, my dear friends, as you consider today the place that you need resurrection, where is it? Where do you need to acknowledge your participation in that death? Where do you need to accept that that actually is the case? And what are you prepared to articulate today? Have you got as far as God can do it? That's great. Have you made a step into God wants to do it? That's fantastic. Have you come to a place of saying God will do it? And I'm going to trust him for the timing. The band are going to come. I'm going to fly to my little scooter down there. And um, the prayer team are going to be available during the singing of this song. Over the last couple of weeks, it didn't seem like it was the most appropriate time to have ministry time. That's not because we've changed anything in the way that we model our gatherings here on Sundays. Just the appropriateness of the time of response, but surely everybody in the building would know that today is a day of response. This is a time when we hear from God. Where's the place that you want resurrection? Will you bring that to me? Will you acknowledge what you need to acknowledge? Will you accept the circumstance without accommodating it? And will you articulate your faith as far as you've found it to grow? Let's pray.